Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And remember, while there are no commercials in these episodes, you can always support the show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade or by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Today we're once again going well back into the archives. Episode 166, The Common Need for Food Storage, was originally uh, broadcast on March 26, 2009. Hope you enjoy it. Another day, another dollar. Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't dictate it as almost always the case during my 50-mile commute from my personal mobile studio, my Jetta Diesel TDI, as I make my way between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, to spend a day with my folks up there. And, uh, you know, folks, uh, today is an interesting day. I, I sounded distracted a little bit yesterday. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I had so much police activity and uh, emergency response activity on the highway yesterday it was a little bit distracting uh, today what I've got is uh, fog with a little less than one mile visibility and uh, no rain but the fog is thick enough that you kind of get that gross coating on your window like it's raining uh, and you have to keep running the windshield wipers but yet you don't want to let the intermittents go or whatever because it's not that bad so if I sound distracted at all anytime during today's show apologize in advance so what are we going to talk about today today we're going to talk about why you need to store food. I'll talk a little bit about how, but mostly why. And uh, for those of you that already get it, uh, remember that on this show, we have new people that have never really delved into this, showing up and starting to listen to this show every day now. Uh, we're, we're, I, I think we're now at a point where during the peak of the week when everybody's listening and I can see the new subscriber growth, it looks like we're growing by about 100 a day on some days. So a brand new person that's just tuning in, you know, often needs kind of a starting point. So that's why I'll always back up once in a while and do that. And I think I might actually even be uh, helpful to you if you're kind of uh, a veteran with a bunch of food stored and maybe understanding why what you're doing is important and continuing to do it. So on with today's topic, why you need to store food. Uh, I think that a lot of people would say, well, you know, if this happens or if that happens, and what they would have generally is two or three things that could cause disruption to the food supply, and that's how they would answer the question. What if there was a trucker strike? Uh, what if we had pandemic flu and you couldn't leave your house? What if we had complete breakdown of the United States government and society as a whole? Uh, what if just in your area you have localized riots and you can't get out of your home safely to go to stores and what have you? And, or, you know, and all these other things. And here's the problem with that. If you give that answer, let's say you live in Houston. Well, rioting and hurricanes might be a big concern for you. Now, 
the 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 new person that's kind of new to this whole stuff and is just kind of going, you know, I'm more worried about my wealth declining and my house values and you know losing my job and I I, I don't get. I don't get that up here. I don't have, you know, hurricanes in the middle of the United States. And there's only 10,000 people in the biggest town near me, and that town is 25 miles away. I'm not real worried about that. So it's better, I believe, when you're thinking about this to focus on what uh, I've come to term the commonality of disaster. And if I'm ripping anybody off, somebody let me know. But I think that is my term. That is uh, it's part of my three-prong approach, and we talked about two of them yesterday, it's why I'm doing this show today, that as you're assessing your needs as a modern survivalist, there's three things to look at. Number one is your threat probability matrix. We talked about this yesterday, but losing your job is more likely than an asteroid impact. you got two totally different ends of the spectrum, but an asteroid impact is a global disaster, and losing your job is an individual disaster, so that's that's the, the second you know, plank to kind of sorting through this stuff and coming up with your plan and coming up with the motivation to carry through with the plan that as the probability of the threat declines the threat impact scale which is plank two increases so yeah it's a hell of a lot less likely that the entire United States economy will collapse than let's say your city will go broke and cut essential services and have to lean on another city but the impact of of an economic economic breakdown national you know scale is a hell of a lot bigger for the individual and for how many people it affects so as probability declines the impact scale increases that is why it's a beautiful thing i guess if anything about disaster can be beautiful the disasters have what i call a commonality of disaster and the commonality of disaster may not be a term that I've used on the show much, but I talk about it all the time when I say, so now that we've discussed threat X, Y, Z, what do we do to prepare for it? And I follow that with, we do the same thing that we always say that you do. Cut your debt, reduce your expenses, have cash on hand, store food, produce some of your own food, store water, have a plan for where to go if you have to leave where you're at, hopefully have a place prepared to go to, have a plan for the entire family on how to get there, who does what, how, right? So it's, and I won't go through the whole thing, but it's always the same. Well, why is it always the same? It's because the commonality of disaster is always the same. You may not be in a situation where you're without power or food or whatever in any given scenario, but the things that are at risk are always the same thing when you're getting down to the fundamental of survival. Survival for yourself, survival for your family, survival for those around you that you care about that maybe are still grasshoppers and not paying attention to what's going on, that you're willing to help if you need to. And what I mean by that is there's certain things that we have to be able to do. We have to be able to procure new stuff. You are never going to store enough that you won't either need to buy or barter for something else. No man is an island is the old saying. So that's why you want to make sure you're low on debt to no debt. 
That's why you want to make sure you have some cash reserves. That's why you want to make sure you have some sort of alternative form of currency. Do I believe that, you know, silver coins, pre-1964, dimes, quarters, 50 cent pieces, dollars, are the end-all, be-all of alternative currency? No, but I think that they're a safe investment, and I think they're the easiest thing to acquire, and I think that they would suffice if you had to rely on them. That's why I recommend those. The next thing you have to realize with survival is you've got to eat. That's what we're going to talk about today. You've got to, that's why you have to store food. You also have to realize that no matter how much food you store, that if the disaster continues for a long enough duration, you're not going to be able to rely on stored food forever. That's why you might have to barter. And it's also why you may have to grow your own food. Because if you're not growing your own food, when the storage stuff runs out and you don't have anybody to barter with because nobody else stored their own food either, you starve even though you were prepared. You just starve later than everybody else. You have to store water because the human body needs it. You can go without food for weeks if you had to. It sucks. You'll look really bad. Sooner or later, you'll die. But you can go pretty a good amount of time. And you can probably eat something. If you have to rely on eating wild greens, you can find something to eat just about anywhere in the world other than the most extreme places. And even some of the most extreme places, you can still find something to eat. If you don't have water for 48 hours, you're pretty much dead. That's a reality. That's a harsh reality. So you store water. So the commonality of disaster is a simple understanding that Everything that you do to prepare for disaster prepares for more than one disaster. It prepares for all of them, and it prepares for whatever the particular impact on you is. In other words, you can have rioting in your area that no one ever comes to your house, so you don't have to use your gun during this disaster, but you also don't want to leave until somebody cleans up the mess, so the food stored works for you there. Likewise, the the, the rioting could spill into your neighborhood, and you may have to defend your home, so now you need your gun. Either way, it was a good idea to have a firearm and well-trained adults to know how to use it in your home. Either way, it was a good idea to have food in your home. So, why food? Why is is it that we focus so much on food? Here's the fundamental reality about that. It's because it's so available, and it's so cheap, and it's so easy to do, and it's something that you can do starting today, no matter who you are. Now, if you go into our forum, you'll find a thread on people storing food in five-gallon buckets. You'll see quite elaborate things that they've done to make their food store for years. That's wonderful. That's what you want to get to. You, You want to get to a point where you have at least, you know, maybe a half dozen buckets of really long-term storage goods put up, stuff that can be left five years, and then you can do the whole thing again if you wanted to and, and, you know, donate it to Goodwill or whatever, or eat it or, you know, whatever, whatever you want. But that's not your starting point. If you try to start with all, you look at it and you go, okay, well, I need mylar bags. I need these special food-grade buckets. I need oxygen-absorbing tabs. Uh, I need a food sealer. And, uh, God, you know, and you start adding it all up, you go, man, that's a significant investment. Well, what you need to start with, and this is why we focus on it, because, again, anybody can do this, is this week when you go to the grocery store, instead of buying seven days' worth of food, buy nine. And buy two days' worth of food that will store well. 
Don't even worry about whether you need electricity or not to store it. If it's including some meat and some things to go in the freezer, that's fine. Take the stuff. Make sure, especially the stuff in the freezer, they'll go ahead and Ziploc bag it, double bag it, stick it in the freezer, label it, date it, start making things organized in your pantry. Same thing. Clear a shelf. You know, start with a shelf in your pantry. Go through your pantry, throw out all the crap that you're never going to eat, clear a shelf, and make that your initial storage. And start stacking things in an organized manner on that shelf. Don't worry about whether it's, you know, you might put it in lines. And when you fill that shelf, go get yourself a big Rubbermaid tub, a good heavy-duty one so rodents can't get into it. Take all the stuff off that shelf, put it in a tub, fill the shelf again. The reason you have to do this, again, folks, is because there is a commonality in place. No matter what goes wrong, one of the most at-risk places a human being is, is in their ability to feed themselves. And if you have food and you can feed yourself, then you don't panic. You think clearly. You don't worry as much. And you're able to get through whatever situation comes your way. Remember, the most valuable asset that any survivalist has, whether you're trying to survive an urban disaster, being stranded in the wilderness, being lost on the side of the road, dealing with you know, a refugee situation because there's a war, a war on. And we, we, you know, we're arrogant enough to believe that could never happen here. No matter what it is, your mind is your most valuable asset. Think clearly, calmly, and rationally, understanding what you do matters, and then you get through things. And that's a, that's a commonality of survival for people. That The people that do that, the people that believe what they do matters, are always the ones that have a higher probability of surviving minor to the most worst disasters you can come up with. This includes even people like cancer patients. Cancer seems to be a completely indiscriminate killer. It kills young, it kills old, it kills black, it kills white, it kills race, nationality, sexual orientation, none of it matters. Cancer kills everybody. Period. Right? Wrong. That's that's a lie. That's a lie. You ask any oncologist... When a patient is told they have cancer, they get through the initial shock and the initial anger, and they come to the point of acceptance, I have to deal with this, the ones that accept death, or the ones that say, I don't care what your prognosis is, and not in that initial rage, but in a calm, rational way, I don't care what your prognosis is, I'm going to beat this. Do they all beat it? No. But you ask any oncologist who beats it more often. Who surprises them that they lived when the oncologist was sure they were going to die more often? The person that believed what they did mattered or the person that just said, do whatever you want, so, you know, whatever you think will work, but I'm just going to kind of put my trust in your hands. You're the doctor. You know best. That patient dies far more often than the one that says, why are you doing this? Even if they let them do it. Why am I getting this therapy? Why am I getting this treatment? What is, what's the probability that this is going to work for me? What are the side effects? What are the risks? What are the other things? Even if they end up doing the exact same treatment path, the very act of defi- deciding what I do matters improves the survival rate of cancer. Now, if that's the case with something like cancer, where it would seem that what you do shouldn't matter, It's how healthy you are and what you're treated with is what should matter. But yet the mental state has an effect, a measurable, marked effect. Then when you're in a situation where your choices have immediate consequences, you go out the door when you shouldn't, someone shoots you. 
You try to go to the store when they've told you not to. It's closed. You don't get there anyway. You get exposed to the disease or the whatever's out there. Immediate consequences. What you do is even more important, clearly. And your mental state is even more important, clearly. Well, you will think much more clearly. You will be abundantly clear if you have a full belly, and above all, if you know, especially when you have children or a spouse, that they're going to eat tonight and tomorrow and the next day and the next day as well. And if you have that mental clarity, you're going to be able to deal with whatever, whatever you have to deal with. If you know we eat today, but we will not eat tomorrow, we are out, we are done. Now, everything in your life will become prioritized around how do we get more food. How do we get more food? And then you make foolish decisions, decisions you know that are wrong, but you have to do them because your only other choice is to sit still and starve. That's why you have That's as cut and dry as I can make it. Now, what are some of the disasters that would lead to the commonality of a food shortage? Well, if... Uh, if the climate change people are right or wrong and right in a back-around way, we could have a major climactic shift on the planet and have a massive effect on the agricultural production throughout the United States, throughout the world for that matter. And that could be because of a rapid upswing or a rapid decline in global temperature. Now, folks, I don't believe that your tailpipe is causing global warming. I think your carbon footprint is a bullshit lie. I don't think that has anything to do, though, with whether or not we have a threat from the planet either excessively warming or excessively cooling. The agriculture that's done throughout the world is based on climatic norms, okay, if that, there's even a way for that, for the regions that they're in. In other words, they grow certain varieties and certain types of crops, and they plant at certain times, and they harvest at certain times, and they treat with certain chemicals, and they use certain methods in Australia. And they use a different method in Australia in, say, around Queensland than they would over on the western side once you come out of the outback and you have a little bit of a good growing climate on the other side of the, the uh, actually I guess that's the east. Yeah, it would be, I don't know, man. It's up to you guys down in Australia what you want to call east and west. That would be the east to me. Um, you know, th- there's differences just there in our smallest continent. So there's a massive difference in how agriculture is conducted in Georgia versus how agriculture is conducted in Germany versus how agriculture is conducted in Argentina. If you have a massive climatic shift, even if there's plenty of spaces out there that are still good for growing, all the agriculture in that area has to be shifted to accommodate a new climatic norm. Possible? Yes. Probability? Low. Right? Because it affects the whole earth, the probability is lower than you losing your job. Much lower. Impact scale? Huge. So that's one thing. How about this one, though? let's, let's, Let's make the probability higher. Let's move to just... A national. See what I'm doing? I'm working backwards through the threat probability matrix. Let's say that this summer or next summer the economy begins to either recover or artificially recover. They'll look the same way. It'll be hard to tell which one it is. I'll leave it up to you to make your own choice at the time. All I'm saying is that all of a sudden that the, uh, the, the everything starts to return to the way it was this summer. 
Things are not great, but they're decent. Stock market's not climbing like a rocket, but it's slowly working its way up. Consumer confidence returns. People start buying more cars and trucks. Everything starts to roll more. Stores start having to turn over more inventory, and the transportation level of the United States begins to rise again. We will immediately drive the price of oil back up to where it was. Gas prices will rise. Now, if this, now, here's what we gotta understand. At the same time all this has been going on, we've been pumping money into the economy. Trillion dollars two days ago. We'll just throw a trillion dollars at it. It'll be alright. It'll make everything better. Yeah. Freaking idiots. So we've been devaluing the dollar. So if oil makes a similar run to what it did last summer, This time around, your dollars will buy less of it. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody, but it should if you've been paying attention to this show for any length of time. Your money is being devalued every time they print a new dollar because our dollar gets its value from other dollars. In other words, if there was only $1,000 in existence in the United States, each dollar would have a certain amount of purchasing power. But if I drop another $1,000 into the economy, and I'm making these numbers small so they're easier to understand, the value of the dollar in your pocket just got cut in half. Because I've doubled the supply, and since there's nothing backing the supply, the only place I can get value for my new money is from the old money. Reverse stock splits. Now I dump in $10,000 on top of the two. There's 12. Now your money's only worth 20% of what it was after I cut it in half. That's what's been going on with the money supply. So when you see oil and gas shoot up again, they'll go higher than they did last time. That is a simplistic understanding of inflation. So what happens when diesel fuel, instead of being $4 and in some places $5 like it was this summer, let's say diesel fuel goes to seven fifty a gallon, $8 a gallon, and the truck drivers say, you know what, you know what, it cost me, you know, $5,000 to make a run now, and I get paid $4,850 to make that run. I I lose money every time I fire my truck up and roll down the highway. Or, you know, I make uh, $5,500, I make $500 profit. You know what? $500 for three days' work on the road like that, just, just, uh, you know, not home, driving 24-7, over the road, out to California and back, whatever it is, just isn't enough money. Because I can't work for two days after that, because you know, so you know, I'm pretty much now down to making five hundred dollars a week. Five hundred dollars a week, I can make that sweeping floors. I don't really need to do this kind of work anymore. Five hundred dollars a week, especially after I get taxed and I have to pay for maintenance and I have to pay for, yeah, you know, it's not five hundred dollars a week. It's two hundred and seventy bucks. It's not much more than minimum wage. So all the truck drivers get together and they say union or no union, doesn't matter. We're not making money and the truck drivers strike. You can call it strike, you can call it just parking their rigs until oil comes down. Right? It could have, could be motivated to drop, drop the price of fuel or it could just be, I can't do it. I can no longer afford to run my rig. What happens to food supply then? How much of your food gets to your supermarket by that truck? So now we have national disaster, higher probability, still, you know, not the most probable thing in the world, but big impact scale. But it affects you the same way. It's just as bad for you.
if you have no food in your home other than enough for this week, as a global agricultural shortage, your only, you know, your only upside is it probably won't last as long. That's because the impact is less. Now let's move down from national to a large-scale regional event like Hurricane Katrina. Um, when you were, if you were, you know, impacted by Hurricane Katrina, hopefully, if you had your food stored, you had it stored somewhere up in the upper reaches of your home. But if you were stuck there and you had food stored, especially food that didn't need to be cooked, at least you ate while you waited for rescue. What's the odds of a thing like Hurricane Katrina happening to you? Well, where do you live? If you don't live near coastal fronts, you know, a hurricane may not seem that likely, but there are other things that could impact you. What if you happen to be impacted by a localized terrorist event that involves a biological nuclear or, let's say, a dirty bomb that locks down your area? Again, probability, it's less you know, then then something happened to you individually or neighborhood or something like that. But the impact to you is the same. We have a commonality of disaster. There's no food coming in. Now, the reason the impact scale declines from a national level is since the people around you, whether it's been impacted by a hurricane, whether it's been impacted by a biological chemical, there is at least people that are unaffected that are now able to organize and have a staging area to come in and help you. What if it's large-scale rioting? See, you have to look at your area and say, well, what would affect a fairly large regional area around me, half of my state, uh, you know, more than just my city and its suburbs? What are the things that can do that? And you'll start to realize there's a lot of them, and they're unique to your area. Uh, one of the things that happened that I would call a large regional event this uh, this this winter that spanned multiple states was a massive ice storm just about a month and a half ago. And there were people that went without power for 9, 10, 11, 12 days. And there were people that couldn't get anywhere to get any food. If they didn't have anything in the house, they didn't eat during that time. The roads were coated with ice. There were, you know, it's more than just the roads being icy. There were trees down. There were power lines down. A lot of the places were impassable. There's a great little article by Kentucky Farmer on our forum about how, you know, it took him so much effort just to get to help a couple neighbors that were relatively close to him. And, and what they went through during this, this ice storm. And that ice storm actually, uh, there's a form thread I did. We got a very minor impact by it here in Texas. It didn't really cause us much grief other than some bad traffic. But the storm itself, it reached from Texas to Pennsylvania. But it was a real narrow storm. If you look at the radar shot, I did a screenshot of that day, a very narrow storm. What if that storm had been, I don't know, ten times as large, ten times as wide as it moved through? Don't think it can happen. Of course it can happen. It's happened before. I've seen, I saw an ice storm back in the 80s in Pennsylvania where we lived. Nobody went anywhere for about nine days. Because we got an ice storm, and after the ice storm ended, it got colder. The ice froze solid and hard, and before they could start cleaning it up, a blizzard moved in, and we got three feet of snow on top of two inches of ice. And that was a that was a freaking disaster. And some idiots down in Philly pushed the snow into the river, back the river up, and caused the ice flow out of the river. That was an even bigger disaster. That didn't affect us. But all I'm saying is when you look at these large regional area disasters, there's still 
the fundamental fact that you may not be able to get to a place to procure food or you may not be able to purchase food because nobody may be selling. And one of these large events like this, it, look at it this way too. So we sit here in Texas, and we have these little snowstorms, little ice storms come through in North Texas. They're never that bad. They could be someday, but they're never that bad. They're usually never forecasted to be that bad. But like there might be some ice and snow on the uh, roads in the morning. It should be cleaned up by about noon. If you can avoid going to the office in the morning, don't go, that type of thing. You go to the Kroger or the Winn-Dixie or Albertson's store the day before when that forecast comes out. There ain't a loaf of bread on the shelves. People freak out. They buy every fire log box available. They buy all the firewood. You know, they buy five gallons of milk. They're going to be at home for one day, and they go out and buy five gallons of milk. They start cleaning off the, 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 the shelves at the grocery store of stuff. They don't even know why they're buying it. Guy, You see a guy, and he's standing there, and he's, he's like tapping his foot. This is what I saw the last time. This guy's standing there tapping his foot. He's got three gallons of milk in the, in the shopping basket. Okay, he's got like four loaves of bread stacked up to the back so that they don't get uh, smashed. He's got two things of soda soda pop uh, up against the bread so that it doesn't fall back and get smashed by everything else. Then he's got like four boxes of macaroni, and then underneath the cart, he's got like as many of those fire logs. I guess he didn't want to get a box, so the boxes were gone. But the individual fire logs, they sell for like five bucks. He's got like as many of them as he can shove under there, and he's like in a hurry. And he's looking around like, did I forget anything? And I'm thinking, this guy has no clue. Well, folks, that's, that person could be you if you're not prepared when you know something's coming. Or that person is the person that takes away all the essentials before you get an opportunity to acquire them if you don't store food. Let's move down the probability matrix to something that is a neighborhood-wide event. Smaller impact, but more probable. Let's say you do have localized rioting in your city. Uh, an unpopular court case similar to what happened with uh, the L.A. riots in the 90s. Let's say that there's some kind of a demonstration done in a city near your area. And I don't care if you live in a place where you don't think it can happen. It can happen anywhere. And people just go nuts. Or let's say you have an electrical failure that affects your area for some reason. The the, the power just goes down. The grid There's a grid failure. And it's, it's, it's bigger than something where they can just do a couple rerouting and it's a couple hours. Some massive event knocks out everything around you, a small region, a little bit bigger than your city. Your city, its suburbs, and maybe kind of twisting outward into some other areas. Now, it's true in that situation that you can get in your car, if it's got gas in it, enough gas to get far enough outside of the affected area, to, to get more gas and go somewhere outside of your affected area where the power is still up and buy some food. But everybody else does the same thing. And what happens is you end up in these small regional events with this little, like little halo where, where power exists and everything gets gobbled up and it slowly grows like a spiral outward. And you have to go further and for, further just to get the things that you need. The further you go, the more fuel you need. And, of course, everybody around you jacks the price of fuel up because of demand. They put rationing in place because they have to. Because And this has happened specifically with small smaller ice storm events all throughout the Midwest for the entire history of people driving cars. And when people becoming dependent on the distribution system instead of dependent upon themselves. Let's move further in. 
from the probability scale to now we're down to your neighborhood. Tornadic storm takes out multiple homes in your neighborhood, including yours. You've stored your food, you've distributed it throughout your house instead of in one place, so you still have your food. You might be thinking, I did a tornado event, I don't really need food. I mean, I can go anywhere and get food. I'm not going to be living in my house. It's been destroyed. Well, hopefully you're taking your food with you wherever you go so that you have the ability to feed yourself and it's one less thing to worry about while you're dealing with the fact that you just lost your house. Or if you keep a bug-out location, you have food there, and you go live in your own house instead of a shelter or, or doubling up with a family member. See, no matter what, you're always better off with food. Now let's move into the individual disaster. most probable thing that can occur to you are the things that affect you as an individual that your next-door neighbor doesn't even care about. Let's start with the most obvious one, the one that so many people are dealing with right now, losing your job. What good is having food stored if you lose your job? Do I have to answer that question for you? If you lose your job, the first thing you have to do is look at all your expenses and start cutting them back. Well, if you have 90 days worth of food stored in your home, it's time to start eating your stored food. And you just cut your grocery bill to almost nothing or to zero. It's up to you how far you want to cut. Maybe you say, well, I have some cash reserves and things like that, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to eat half stored food and half new food, and I'm going to make my stored food carry me through six months at a greatly reduced expense to myself until I get back on my feet and find a new job. And that gives me 90 days, six months of safety net in addition to cash reserves and things like that, where I have one expense I don't have to worry about, and I can get my family back in good shape. So since you're not worried about whether or not your son's going to eat tomorrow morning, you don't take a crappy job, you go find a good job. You don't, you don't go out and do something drastic and dangerous for yourself. You think calm and rational, and you remember what you do matters. In all of these scenarios, every single one of them, having stored food helps you. And they're as radically different as I can make them. You think about where we started at a global climatic shift of the planet, and we end up with a man losing his job. And the commonality of disaster for the individual it's uniform all the way across. And it's aided by the same things all the way across. And if you do the right things, and then you start applying this to the other things that we do beyond food, but today's show is about food. Water storage, cheap, effective, easy. Being able to defend your home. Having a plan. All of these things, you can put them straight across the board as well right down to an individual disaster that your house burns down and you need to bug out. Maybe you don't bug out tactically the way you might while there's rioting going on around you, but organize procedural methodology to get from where you are to somewhere that's safer. Helps you from the individual level all the way to the global level. Same thing with storing food. So I hope that this is a little bit inspirational for you and you start to understand how to start taking this concept of the commonality of disaster and why I spend less time than you would think on a show called the Survival Podcast talking about global or national level catastrophes and I focus more on you as a person. Well, the reason I do that is if we focus on you as a person and you prepare to lose your job, lose your home, 
and you, you prepare for those two possibilities, and you insure against them as best you can. You insure against job loss impact by having reserved cash, and you insure against home loss by paying for your home and not having a home you can't afford and having insurance on it. And you do those two things as fundamentals, and then you build up, you know, a bug-out bag, a bug-out vehicle, a plan to get the hell out if you have to, stored food, stored water, and food production. And you marry your food production to food stores, so not only are you producing food, but you're storing your surplus. Then one day you look up, and you go, well, what if a national disaster happens? All I did was focus on me. All I did was focus on my family. All I did was focus on things like a job loss or a house fire. I can't possibly be prepared for these other things, yet I am. I am prepared for these other things. I do know where to go if I have to leave. I can feed my family if something goes wrong. We're not going to die of dehydration in 48 hours if the spigot on my sink is not turnable and water doesn't come out of it anymore. I have a plan and I know what to do. And I really understand now that what I do matters. And I know how to act in this situation. And I'm ready for 90% of what can come. It's almost magic, but it all comes back to those three components. Threat probability, threat impact, commonality of disaster. Make those the crux of your planning. You're making a decision. I have an extra $200 to dedicate to my family's future this month. Which ones do I, which things do I do of those on my list? Which are the most probable? You know, against the impact scale. So maybe this is a little more probable, but it's very close. But the impact of this is a hell of a lot bigger. I'm making this decision. Impact's a hell of a lot bigger, but the probability is just whacked out the other direction. This is highly likely. This could happen any day. This is a, you know, this is a Hollywood event over here. I'm going to go with the, with the most probable event. You do that, and all of a sudden, all your decision-making becomes easier. There's less arguments against spouses, even in places where spouse isn't totally on board with what you're doing, right? Spouse is like, I don't know, some of this stuff just seems a little bit whacked out. But all of a sudden, now you have a justification. Hey, honey, I can lose my job tomorrow. You can lose your job tomorrow. They're doing this first. And they start to go, this guy's thinking, or this lady's thinking. Whichever spouse is dragging the other one across the finish line goes, wait a minute, this makes sense to me now. I get this. We're not worried about World War III. Worry about making sure we can feed the kids if one of us loses a job. Hell, we're, we're making sure that we could still send Johnny to college since he's a gifted young man if something goes wrong in between now and then. Hell, we're making sure that there's some money for Timmy to go to vocational school because we're brilliant enough to understand that not everybody needs to go to college and college isn't right for Timmy, but the kid has an incredible head on his shoulders and he knows how to fix things. We need to help find him a profession too in a different path and that's going to cost money and that's going to take effort. That's what this type of decision-making leads to. It leads to a common-sense plan that ensures your family gets to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And I hope today has led you in that direction. And I hope it's been an inspirational show. And I hope you feel just a little bit of an urge the next time you're in the grocery store. And you're sitting there and you're thinking about buying two boxes of something. Because that's what you're going to use in the next week or two. Buy three. 
clear a shelf, put one of them on that shelf. When the shelf fills up, put everything into a container. Get two containers full, then worry about mylar and air seals and five-gallon buckets and everything else. Just start somewhere. Start being an ant today. Remember, all through the summer, while the grasshopper plays and the ant toils and works, the ant doesn't work that hard. He doesn't work that hard. He takes enough food for him and the people that mind the home while he's away for that day. And a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And he brings it back in. And everybody stays in the house at night. And everybody eats. And by the time winter comes, there's so much food stored that it's no problem to make it through to spring. And remember what happens to the grasshopper. In spite of the new books, to make our children feel good, the ant doesn't take care of the grasshopper. The, ant, the grasshopper freezes his ass off, and he dies. And then the ants come out of their little hole on an Indian summer day, and they find the dead grasshopper. They chop him up in little pieces, and they add him to his, their food storage. You want to be the ant, not the grasshopper. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.